Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the chance we have to come and read your word together, to meet as your people, to bring our prayers and requests to you, to declare your praises. Lord, we pray now that as we uh, open the scriptures, as we look at these images of uh, who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that we might see him clearly. Uh, Lord, if we don't yet trust in him as our king, we pray that we might put our trust in him today. And Heavenly Father, if there are some parts of our life that we refuse to let Jesus be king of, Lord, we pray that you'll open them up, uh, that you'll rule over all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, does anyone know what's happening on the 6th of May this year? 6th of May? Shaz knows. What is it, Shaz? Come on loud. The King's Coronation. Did anyone know that? Some people did, some people didn't. Uh, on the 6th of May, there will be an extravagant ceremony in London where King Charles will be officially crowned, uh, a coronation. Uh, it's going to be one of the biggest events of the year. Uh, now, a coronation is where the monarch, in this case the king, he has uh, the crown formally placed on his head, uh, and he's kind of formally kind of given kind of the regal uh, power. He is, he is recognized as the king. Uh, and the coronation, it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be kind of like a, a barbecue around the back of Buckingham Palace. It's going to be a massive, elaborate ceremony. And every single detail of the coronation ceremony is uh, filled with meaning and significance. Uh, everything about it communicates something about the king. Uh, so uh, there will be political leaders there. The world's uh, most influential and famous people will be there. And it tells us that the king is someone of great importance. Uh, an invitation to the king's coronation, well, it's going to trump everything else. You're not going to be like, oh, 6th of May, I was going to wash my hair that day, I can't come, sorry. No, it's gonna, not going to be like that, it'll trump everything, because he is someone of great importance. Uh, at the coronation, I'm sure there's going to be uh, masses of uh, defence force personnel, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, uh, they're going to fly planes over, they're going to do all that sort of stuff, and it's going to tell us that the king, at least in theory, wields great military power. He has great military might at his disposal. And we know there's going to be a crown and jewels and great extravagance. It tells us that the king is someone of immense wealth. He is someone who is worth spending vast sums of money on in order to honour and to celebrate. You see, this coronation, it'll drip with symbolism and everything about it will be communicating something to us about who the king is about his wealth, about his power, about his majesty, about his rule. Here in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 21, uh, it begins with Jesus walking with the crowds to Jerusalem, the royal city, and it's a coronation. It's where he will be invested as king. Uh, and these events here, they're dripping with symbolism and meaning. They each tell us something about Jesus, the king. You see, in the Old Testament, there was only two reasons why the whole of Israel would kind of all gather together at Jerusalem. There was only two reasons why they would do that. One would be to enthrone a new king, a coronation, and the other was to come and meet with God in the temple. They only went to Jerusalem to make a new king and to meet with God. And these crowds, as they walk along with Jesus in Matthew 21, uh, little do they realize, but they're going to be doing both. They're going to witness the enthronement of Jesus as God's eternal king, and they're going to meet with God as they meet Jesus, God the Son. 
And this all happens at this clash of kingdoms. You see, the king and the kingdom that Jesus brings, it doesn't meet the hopes and the expectations of the people, especially the religious rulers of the day. See, so far in Matthew's gospel, we're just jumping back into 21, but so far in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been revealing what his kingdom is like. Uh, And if you remember last year, uh, Jesus' kingdom is a subversive kingdom. It's a counter kingdom. It's a kingdom that's unlike the earthly power structures that we expect. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's where whoever wants to be great among you must become a servant. It's where um, ultimately it's a kingdom where whoever wants to uh, save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for the king, well, they'll save it. And so there's this clash of kingdoms between Jesus' counter-kingdom and these earthly kingdoms and these earthly expectations of his people. And that clash breaks out into open in chapter 21. And as it breaks out into open in chapter 21, the thing that we see is we see that Jesus comes as the promised Savior King, and he comes to deal with the sin of his people. He comes as the promised Savior King to deal with the sin of his people. Uh, We see that through these three symbolic events, these three acted out parables, the donkey, the temple, and the fig tree. Uh, Now, the clash between Jesus and the religious leaders, it's it's kind of coming to a climax, but it's been building in Matthew's gospel uh, for a little while. Uh, Ever since, really, chapter 15, it's been driving towards this moment. Uh, In chapter 15, that's when the first time that the religious heavies come down from Jerusalem to see Jesus and to, to question him, to find out what's going on. And then from there, Jesus has made clear where this is all heading, Uh, In chapter 16 and in chapter 20, Jesus has told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that when he gets there, he's going to suffer and that he's going to die at the hands of these religious leaders. And that context to know is important. It's important because as we watch Jesus walk to Jerusalem, as we see him go through the temple, as we see him curse the fig tree, it's important for us to see that this clash of kingdoms, Jesus is not a passenger. Jesus is actually in the driver's seat here. Jesus is driving this forward. He has complete control over what is going on, which means that when he comes to be hung up on a cross and crucified, he is willingly laying down his life. That is an act of his sovereign will. And so it means that what's happening here in chapter 21 as well, it's not random chance. It's not fate. These events here, these symbolic events, are acted out parables. These are intentional acts of Jesus' self-disclosure, of his revelation of who he is and what his kingdom is like. Uh, David Jackman is is a really helpful Bible commentator and preacher in the UK, and he says this. He says, As Matthew's account of the last week of Jesus' life moves towards its climax, there is never a flicker of doubt that he is in complete control of all that is happening. We are never to imagine the Lord Jesus is a helpless victim, swept away by an irresistible tide of human opposition. He is always the sovereign Lord, working out everything according to his Father's will, the master of every circumstance. See, Jesus is in complete control, and he does these things in chapter 21, these particular things, to show us things about who he is and what he's come to do that he is the promised Saviour King who has come to deal with the sins of his people. And it all begins with a donkey. So have a look with me at chapter 21, verse 1. Uh, Chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage 
um, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her, colts tied by, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, says that, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. And then verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed. Jesus says, go, there will be a donkey. They go, they get the donkey, they bring it to him. Uh, it all happens just as Jesus said. And like I just said before, Jesus is in complete control. This is all deliberate on Jesus' part to communicate one thing. Uh, if we have eyes to see and if we have ears to hear, it's telling us that Jesus is the promised Saviour King. See, as Jesus arrives uh, on a donkey, uh, Matthew tells us that this is, tells us that this is fulfilment. Uh, this is fulfillment of, a, of a, a promise made by the prophet Zechariah. Uh, have a look there in verse 4 of chapter 21. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is fulfillment. And see, as the crowds welcome Jesus, they shout these, these words. They shout these words of Psalm 118. It, it's a psalm that, that welcomed the promised Savior King to the temple, to Jerusalem. Have a look there in verse 9. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then here it is, Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You see, these promises from long ago, these expectations that one day God would send a king to his people, the promise of a king who would lead them and save them and restore them to, his, to their place of, of peace and blessing in relationship with God. Well, Jesus is showing for all those who have eyes to see and all those who have ears to hear that he is that promised king, that he is the promised king who has come to save and at first glance, these crowds who are marching along ahead of Jesus, these crowds who, who, who call out praises to him and, and lay branches and cloaks on the road, at first glance, they seem to get it. They cry, Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so we have these crowds and, and, and do, they, do the crowds know what they're doing? Can they see? Can they even hear uh, the words on their own lips about who Jesus is? Because all the evidence is here for them. The donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. So they're, they're singing Psalm 118, the psalm that welcomes God's victorious king. They're, they're crying out, Hosanna. They're crying out, save us, even from their own lips. But do the crowds get who Jesus is? Yeah, nah. It's, but that's one Kiwiism. I'm never quite sure whether it's yeah or nah. But I think it's perfect for these crowds. Have a look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds, as the crowds have been walking along with Jesus, they said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Do they recognize Jesus? Yeah, nah. They know his name, they know where he's from. He's Jesus, he's from, he's from Nazareth in Galilee, but they do not recognize him as God's promised king. He's only a prophet in their mind. 
And in five short days, their failure to accept Jesus as their king will become painfully clear. You see, in less than a week, the crowds that were singing Psalm 118 for Jesus, the crowds that shouted Hosanna for Jesus, well, they'll be the same crowds that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And why can't they see it? Well, I think this is explained in our second symbolic event, our second acted out parable, the temple. You see, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, uh, Matthew tells us he goes straight to the heart of the city and he goes straight to the heart of the Jewish religion. He goes straight to the temple. Uh, The temple was the place where God's people would come and meet with him. And it's here that Jesus, the promised Messiah, God the Son, he sees that his people are not prepared to meet him. They are not prepared to receive him as their king. Have a look at me in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Uh, Now, there's lots of stuff that's going on in these verses. Um, The the part of the temple where this buying and selling and this trading was taking place was a place uh, in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, uh, It was the only part of the temple that people who were not Jewish could come and and pray and praise and worship uh, the God of Israel. And so some people say that Jesus was indignant at this fact, uh, that Israel was failing to be the light to the nations that they were supposed to be, Uh, There was no room in the temple for the Gentiles to come and worship. And so Jesus is clearing the way for the Gentiles to come and worship. And that's part of what's going on. If you read Mark's gospel, it seems to be part of what Jesus is doing. Uh, Some assume that the the money changers uh, were involved in some sort of dodgy practices, uh, that kind of, that changing money and selling doves had no place in the temple. Um, uh, That that, that somehow it corrupts the building. Uh, And and there's probably a little bit of that going on. Uh, But... Remember, this is an acted-out parable. These are symbolic events. We need to ask ourselves, what is Jesus trying to show us by what he does? What is he trying to show us? What is he trying to reveal about himself? Well, I think Jesus is trying to expose the hollow worship practices of the people of God. I think by the way that Jesus is acting and the way that the leaders respond... Jesus is revealing that they are rejecting him as their king. They are rejecting his upside down, his counter kingdom. You see, they're not interested in a king who has come to heal the broken or lift up the lowly. They're not interested in him at all. Uh, At King Charles's uh, coronation, uh, the ceremony, I'm told, will have six parts. Uh, The first part of the ceremony is a thing called the recognition Uh, It's where uh, King Charles will enter Westminster Abbey and he'll walk right up to the front and he'll stand next to a special chair, a chair called the Coronation Chair. And as he stands there, the Archbishop of Canterbury will recognize him as the king. Now imagine if on the 6th of May, King Charles walks down the aisle of Westminster Abbey and walks right up and stands next to the Coronation Chair and the Archbishop of Canterbury says, move aside, you're not the king we're waiting for. That's what's going on here in the temple. Look with me at verse 14. 
Verse 14, Jesus is in the temple. In verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and when they heard the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna the son, to the son of David, when they saw and they heard, they were indignant. They were angry. Do you notice why they're angry? Why are they indignant? Well, when they see the wonderful things he did and when they hear the praise of children, immediately Jesus, he is not the king they are waiting for. You know, if you like Star Wars, he is not the king that you're looking for. They realize that Jesus has come. He has come to bring a different sort of kingdom, not the kingdom that they were wanting. You see, Jesus, he comes riding in on a donkey, not on a war horse. He comes in and he clears out the temple rather than kind of clearing off the Roman overlords. He comes and he's healing the sick rather than raising an army. He comes, first of all, to deal with the sins of his people, to, sit, to deal with the sin right at the heart of his nation in the temple. And when the leaders see this, when they see that this is the sort of king that he is, that this is the sort of kingdom that they're bringing, they're indignant. They're not interested. They don't want this sort of king. They don't want this sort of kingdom. They don't want to be part of a kingdom that lifts up the humble and restores the broken. They're not willing to humble themselves before God. They don't want a king who's going to come and deal with their sin because they don't want to have to acknowledge it and repent. They're not willing to humble themselves because they don't see that they are broken. They don't see that they themselves are sinful and in need of a saviour. They just don't see their need. Uh, one of the unfortunate joys of living on this side of the planet is that we get to experience the, that hole in the ozone layer. You know that? Um, uh, it's the reason why we get sunburnt so quickly down here and uh, there's this massive hole parked above us. I remember uh, growing up in Sydney, uh, one time I had an uncle who came to visit us from the United States. Um, and my dad had a boat at the time and so we thought we'd take Uncle Donald out on the, on the, on the harbour, show him the harbour bridge in the opera house. And now on the boat you spend the whole day in the sun. So we offered Uncle Donald a hat and some sunscreen, uh, which he politely declined. Never needed it before. I'm keen to get a bit of a tan. Later we suggested to him, um, Uncle Donald, we don't think it's a good idea that you kind of sunbake um, in the middle of the day. It's fine, I'm just going to load up on vitamin D. Based on his prior experience of the sun in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he had absolutely no need to worry. He had no need. Hats, sunglasses, shade, sunscreen, they were, they were, they were, they were not for him. He had no need. He ignored our offers. He rejected our warnings. And later that night, I've never seen someone so sunburnt in my life. <laughs> the red and the peeling and the burning... Um, and just to be, you know, my Uncle Donald, he's not kind of follically gifted. Um, and the top of his head was so seriously sunburned, I thought he was, he resembled like one of those Klingon kind of people off Star Trek. It was, it was horrible. He hadn't seen the need. He didn't heed the warning. He didn't think what was being offered was something that he, he, he wanted or needed. Much like these religious leaders in the temple, they are not interested in this king. They are not interested in the kingdom that he brings. 
They're not interested in the humble being lifted up or the, restored, or the broken restored. They're not interested in a king who has come to deal with the sins of God's people. And because they're not interested in this sort of king and his kingdom, they reject him. They reject God's appointed saviour, God's promised saviour. And so Jesus leaves the temple and heads to Bethany. And now we have our third symbolic event, the final acted out parable. We have the fig tree. Verse 18, have a look with me. Verse 18, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Now Jesus has approached Jerusalem as the promised saviour king. And we've seen that upon entering the temple, he has been rejected by the leaders of God's people. They are not the king that he is looking for. And now we have this final symbolic act as Jesus curses this fruitless fig tree. So what is Jesus showing us here? What is he revealing? Well, the curse of the fig tree is a sign of his judgment. A sign of the consequences for those who reject him as their king. Uh, See, back in Micah chapter 7, a fruitless fig tree is given as a picture of Israel's failure. A picture of their wickedness, of their unfaithfulness to God. And this tree, as Jesus approaches it, uh, it it, it looks from a distance like it has leaves. It it looks from a distance like it's promising. Just as Jesus, as he walked into Jerusalem and the people are by the side of the road saying, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It looked promising. There were leaves on the tree. But once once he enters the temple... Once he gets up close, he can see there is no fruit. There is no humility amongst God's people. There is no repentance. There is no faithfulness to God and his word. And so this curse of this tree is a sign of God's judgment on those who reject Jesus as their king, of those who refuse to enter his counter kingdom. It looked good from a distance, but at the heart there is no fruit. I feel like I need to deal with those tricky verses there about mountains being thrown into the sea. I know that a lot of you will probably have a question about that. Um, uh, is the reason why um, uh, I haven't moved Mount Victoria into the middle of the harbour because I don't have enough faith? Is that why that hasn't happened? And what does that have to do with this passage about Jesus being God's promised saviour king? Well, have a look at verse 20. Uh, verse 20, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it'll be done. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. The first thing is, um, I'm amazed that the disciples are amazed. Do you realize that? Literally moments before, Jesus was in the temple and he was healing the lame and giving sight to the blind. Like literally moments before. And Jesus has been performing miracles before them pretty consistently for quite a while now. And so surely the withering of a tree, uh, that ought to be pretty straightforward. Yet they're amazed. I think Jesus is continuing to tell his disciples that he is God's promised king, that he is God's promised Messiah, that there is nothing impossible for him. 
because of who he is as God the Son. And that even as he has gone to the temple and even as he's been rejected by the religious leaders in the temple, there is still nothing that is impossible for God. There is nothing that God cannot do, that this situation is not outside of God's control. So I don't think verse 22 is a blank check to just name it and claim it. Uh, We need to keep it in its context. The context is recognizing Jesus as God's promised Savior King. And the context afterwards is immediately afterwards, they're going to question, uh, Jesus is going to be questioned about his authority to do these things. And so what I think he's saying in these verses is, I have that authority because I'm God's promised King. And that authority and that power as God's promised King has no limit. It has no end. You see, Jesus has come as God's promised Savior King. Even though he has come in humility on a donkey, even though he has come to the lowly and the broken, even though his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first, that does not mean he is not powerful. There is no limit to his reign and to his rule. There is no limit to his power and his authority. He's God the Son who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. You see, as God's people head to Jerusalem, they enthrone a king. And here as they watch him curse the fig tree, they meet God himself. They come to meet with God. And so there are real consequences. There is judgment for those who reject Jesus as their king because they are rejecting God as their God. Those three symbolic events, the donkey, the temple, the fig tree. Jesus comes as the promised Savior King. He comes to deal with the sin of his people. And there is judgment on those who refuse him as their king. Now, I think there's a few ways that this chapter challenges us. Uh, The first is, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, here he is. Here is Jesus. Presented before you as God's promised Savior King. He has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to heal the broken. He has come to forgive sinners. And so the question for you is, can you see it? Can you see it? Will you welcome him as your king? Will you humble yourself before him and join his counter kingdom? A kingdom where there is forgiveness and healing and hope and life. Because there is nothing more significant than you can, that you can do than to accept Jesus as your Savior King. And to do it, it's, it's, it's very simple. It, it's, you can really just, how do you do it? Well, three simple words. Sorry, please, and thank you. Three simple words. Sorry, please, and thank you. Sorry for rejecting you as my King. Please forgive me for my sin. Thank you that Jesus has died in my place for my sin. Sorry, please, and thank you. Accept Jesus as your king. Now, for those of us who might have been following Jesus for a while, the challenge for us here um, uh, is to still live with Jesus as our king. But sometimes as we we live following Jesus for a while, we we, we find ways to just kind of slip him into our pocket. And what I mean by that is we're willing to let Jesus kind of uh, be our king, um, uh, 
But we want him to be the king who kind of deals with all the problems out there and not the problems in here. Are we willing to let Jesus continue to deal with our sin and with our corruption and with our rebellion? You see, sometimes when we join Team Jesus, uh, we can lose sight of that fact, can't we? That Jesus does deeply care about our sin and our failure. That Jesus does deeply care that we love God and that we honour Him as our King. I think it's possible that we can lose sight of this picture of Jesus, that He is God's promised King who has come to deal with the sins of His people, His people. We can lose sight of that and we can just want Jesus to come and deal with the people we don't like. And we can become like these religious leaders who wanted a king who came and dealt with their enemies rather than dealing with them. But Jesus is the king who has come to deal with sin, beginning with God's people. So will you let him come and deal with your heart and your sin first? Uh, Chris Wright, he's an author and a missionary, he wrote this, and I'll finish with these words. If Jesus had allowed himself to be the kind of king the crowds wanted, he would never have been the saviour that they actually needed. If he allowed himself to be the kind of king the crowds wanted, he would never have been the saviour they actually needed. It's a warning for us too. If we turn Jesus into the king that we want, a king who does our bidding, a king who, who, who hates those that we hate, a king who doesn't deal with our sin, then we run the risk of losing him as the saviour that we need. The king who has come to deal with the sins of his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, our king. We thank you that he comes in humility, but also in great power. We thank you that he willingly lays down his life so that we might be forgiven. And Lord, we thank you that he rises to new life in the resurrection through great power. So we can be sure that he is the king. That he is the king who has come to save. And Lord, help us to uh, remember him as our king. Lord, let us welcome him into our hearts to deal with our sin first. And we pray all these things in his great name. Amen. Uh, if the musos want to come up, uh, we're going to respond uh, to God's word by singing Jerusalem, uh, by singing a song that's based around uh, the events of this passage, uh, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, and how he is treated uh, by those who are there. So please stand as we sing together.